sunlit world of what he believes to be reality. But there is, unseen by most, an underworld, a place that is just as real, but not as brightly lit. A dark side. What a relief. Another exhausting GSA convention in the books. My hands are going to be sore for a week from all those twinkle fingers. That was terrible. The resolution to boycott Transylvania nearly drove me to Lovecraftian insanity. And the debate over whether we could boo was interminable. Fuck Robert Smith's rules. Who would have thought the gothic socials of America would be such a melodramatic bunch? Well... I know it's not you guys' thing, but my caucus emerge, I mean, um, scourge, uh, we really needed your help to push our abolish the haunted Eastern State Penitentiary resolution against the meanies of the Blood and Roses caucus who wanted to protect the Zombie Guard Union as fellow workers. Billy GSA really is the worst. Come on, I'm exhausted. Let's get a cab. Ah, here's one. Where to, folks? Let's see. I have the address of our hotel right here. 666 Fifth Avenue. Wait a sec. Ain't that? Isn't that? That's the Palmer Hotel, ain't it? Yeah, I think so. Non-canonically, at least. You look like nice folks, so a word of friendly advice. I wouldn't stay there if I was you. It's haunted, and it's especially haunted this time of year. Us folks around these parts call it the spooky season. That's fine with us. Contrary to popular belief, I am not one of those SJWs who made it so you can't even say Happy Halloween anymore. We love Halloween. We actually just came from the GSA convention. GSA? Lady, no offense. But I'm not talking about your hot topic shopping, Mark Fisher reading, Marilyn Manson listening, dressing up like the latest Netflix show PMC bullshit. I'm talking about the real proletarian spooky season. Not for the faint of heart. And don't get me started on your friend the PSL. Wow, prolier than thou much? And what's this guy's problem with those super yummy pumpkin spice lattes they got this time of year? Look, thanks for the advice, buddy, but everyone knows spooky season is just another corporate holiday gimmick that Home Depot invented to sell gigantic plastic skeletons. All right. Don't say I didn't warn you. Here it is. The Palmer Hotel. Damn. Well, that was ominous. Anyways... Thanks, fellow worker. Keep the change. Sure thing. But you won't be needing it. <laughs> They're credit card only. Wow, I love this old hotel. It's kind of spooky, though. I can't believe people actually stay in this crappy old Art Deco building. 
It's probably got more bodies than even the Chelsea Hotel. Eh, reminds me of my old job in downtown Brooklyn where I worked for that scary old man. I can handle it. Let's check in. Ah, you must be Jamie Peck, Sean KB, AP Andy. We've been expecting you. You have? It's not every day we get big-name podcasters in here. Well, medium name, anyways. I mean, we did get true crime obsessed in here last week, and the Doughboys are checking in tomorrow. We hired an extra cleaning crew for them. They really fuck up the bathrooms. Nasty, nasty gentlemen. But you're the first gothic socialist podcast we've ever had. I was beginning to worry it wasn't a thing anymore. It definitely still is. Wonderful. Well then, let me welcome you to the Palmer Hotel. Our dining room is right through there. There's some bathrooms that away. And over there is our gift shop where, by the way, we sell a book. Perhaps you may have heard of it. The Palmer Hotel, a collection of spooky short stories set over a century at a downtown hotel. $20, Venmo, Rick Dash Paulus, PayPal, Rick Paulus at Gmail, Cash App, Dollar Side, Rick Paulus. Huh, I think I've heard of that somewhere. Maybe in some replies on Twitter. What's the deal with that Rick Paulus guy anyways? But Sean, I'm Rick Paulus. Oh, uh, cool. Nice to meet you. You know, you're a lot more attractive than I had expected. Yeah, a lot of people say that. Anyway, you're probably wondering how I got the job. You see, after applying, management said I seemed enthusiastic. A little too enthusiastic. I need the money. Those fucking books don't print themselves. Anyway, they offered me the concierge position. Or should I say, monster-cierge. I was also hired to oversee housekeeping, or should I say... House reaping. Are spooky puns, like, your whole thing? No, no, of course not. Come on, let me show you to your rooms. You see, I'm also the hell hop. I'm sorry, am I freaking you out? Am I offending you? Not really. We're on Twitter, so we're used to bad Halloween puns. You rhyme part of your username with scare or ghoul or hell. So clever. Oh, you think it's easy, do you? Not impressed with our Halloween puns, are you? Then you should have nothing to fear as we step right over here to our elevator. Going down. Uh, are we? Okay, ac- actually, no. Down is the parking garage. The non-canonical parking garage. <laughs> but seriously, we're going up to Mr. KB's room first, room 207. Wait a minute. This isn't going to be like that J. Duplass show, Room 104, or David Lynch's show, Hotel Room, right? A horror anthology in which each gruesome tale takes place in different eras, but in the same hotel room? (laughs) Oh my, no. Not the same hotel room. That would be ridiculous and, frankly, unbelievable. Okay, here it is. Room 207. Say, you're in the trades, aren't you? Perhaps you've heard of a teamster named Gus. Gus? The Gus? That rat bastard who stole us all out? Yes, the same. He stayed here some time ago, but he didn't have the most comfortable sleep. Here, let me tell you 
the story. Anything you want is on us. The handlers had told Gus when they dropped him off. So as soon as they scooted their asses out the door, he ran to the mini-fridge and cracked open a bud. He downed it in half a minute, crushed the aluminum in his bare hand, and banked it off the wall in the trash can. Then he went back for number two, his first real beer, as Gus had grown to think of it, the last one being more an aperitif. He sat at the desk and unbuckled an end of his denim coveralls, letting his gut expand to its naturally curvaceous state. He'd just taken another sip when a powerful knock boomed against the door, so he set his beer down. It perspired a dark ring on the desk's wood. He opened the door without peeping, and on the other side were his two lawyers. He'd forgotten their names already. They wore dark suits in silence. The tall one carried a briefcase, the pudgier one only a grin and a handshake. They stepped past him into the room. Tall pulled the desk away from the wall with a shove, negligent of the can still resting on top, which Gus snatched before it tipped over. He sipped as the suit sat side by side on the bed, creaking the springs beneath them, Gus soon taking their cue that he was supposed to sit in the desk chair across. Tall opened his case and pulled out a stack of papers. This is what we're dealing with. Pudge said. Tall fanned the papers like a deck of cards. This is all sworn testimony from others who've been fucked over like yourself. People who've also had their hard-earned money taken for these union dues without say in the matter. Gus drank and used his opposing hand to mimic a chin rub, trying to give off the impression that he was deep in thought. I'm just a husk, representing them. Well, not exactly. You're a part of this group. But for the lawsuit, we need one of you to physically be present, which is why you're here, living large in this lavish hotel. Gus hacked phlegm into his open hand, wiped it on his jeans. So, I, I'm kind of like the boss. Gus nodded in understanding. I'm in charge of all these folks here. No, not at all. Actually, yeah, sure, whatever. Gus smiled proudly, but he was just fucking with them. He knew the gist by now. He just didn't want to roll over for a tummy scratch because these hacks said so. He wanted to make them sweat a little in their $1,000 suits, their polished shoes, their salaries that could afford actual city real estate. It felt nice to be on the dominant end for once. They approached him months back in a Des Moines diner while he was on a break en route to Indianapolis to drop off a shipment. Pudge had set three creased 20s on the table and said all they wanted was time to chat. He could even eat as they did. Halfway through his burger, they told him that a settlement would grant him five years' pay all at once. But as he dipped his last fry into the pool of leftover beef grease, they hinted that if he were willing to go even further, they could get even more together. They said he could change the world. Why should hardworking Americans be forced to give their money away with no say? Pudgett said, pounding the diner table in an act of frustration that Gus immediately read his performance. So some union head can collect a six-figure salary for sitting on his ass all week. I sit on my ass all week. Doing it right now, in fact. But Gus would be lying if he didn't admit the argument resonated some. Then they promised Gus even more money down the line, and the argument resonated with him even further. They traded information and told him they'd be in contact soon. A few more phone calls, then a verbal agreement, then the paperwork and the train ticket into the city for tomorrow's initial court hearing. Any questions? 
Don't see what they'd be. Show up tomorrow, look pretty, and shut up. Gus opened his mouth and flashed his yellow chompers, their gaps filled with crud from his last meal, some rotten fish sandwich he got from the diner across the way. Not too shabby. Maybe not as pretty as that. He stood from the bed while Tall stacked the papers back into the briefcase. They bid farewell for the day, but after a few steps, Tall spun around and glared at Gus. 6 a.m., Tall said, his first words all meeting. On the fucking dot. He turned his back and they continued down the hall. Gus let the door close and crushed the beer can in his fist. He swished it into the trash can and retraced his steps to the mini-fridge, opened another bud with a satisfying kerchick, sat back on the bed and sipped. He reached to the nightstand for the alarm clock, twisted its knobs for a 5.30 a.m. wake-up, and set it back down. On the fucking dot. Don't worry about me, I actually work for a living. He sipped some more in front of the TV, and eventually the new episode of The Jeffersons came on. He reached for one last bedtime beer before turning it off, but made it only halfway through before passing out on top of the covers in his work clothes, same as usual. Gus dreamt that dream he always did. He was floating above the highway in a seated position, watching the hot black asphalt blur beneath his feet. He was still pressing the gas and manning the clutch, but the rig itself was gone. He just hovered in the air while cornfields on either side swayed in the breeze. He passed under a highway sign that was painted the standard forest green, but the lettering was all scrambled into gibberish. Then, in an instant, he was seated atop the sign itself, his work boots dangling over its edge, watching his truck as it approached over a distant hill. But as it came closer, he saw that it was being piloted by someone other than himself. A new driver. A stranger. He was blurry at that distance, but still looked a lot like Gus. Broad-chested and wide-gutted, but freshly shaven. Sweat poured down his brow from under his red-and-white local number 90 hat. Gus could tell he was nervous about something. The stranger's knuckles, covered with red scratches and purple bruises, gripped the wheel. Gus sat motionless as the truck passed below his feet. Suddenly he was behind the wheel. Not the invisible mass of his recurrent dreams, but his actual rig. When he looked down at his hands, he saw they were now marred with cuts, like he'd just been in a brawl. Gus could feel that he wasn't in his own body anymore, and began to nervously tap his left hand against the wheel. Tap, tap, tap. Tap, tap, tap. Ahead on the highway was an off-ramp. His hands, or whoever's they were, gripped the steering wheel and swerved to the right. Over the horizon, Gus saw that the ramp led only to open, empty space. He tried to swing back onto the highway, but his hands, or whoever's they were, didn't respond. They held firm, aiming straight ahead into nothingness. He felt his foot depress the pedal, then the rumble of the engine below rattling his balls with faint pleasure as it picked up speed and shot up the ramp in two. Gus was in a rocking chair on a porch, watching the sunset beyond fields of corn. Someone behind yelled out, Lloyd, so he naturally stood up and walked inside. The screen door shut with a thwap behind him. Halfway down the hall, he felt a sharp pain and looked down to see a long, rusty nail lodged in his left foot. He fell to the ground in agony. A young boy with frizzy hair and a worried look on his brow came running up, a towel draped over his shoulder. Look what you've done now! He pulled the nail out from Gus's foot, and two drops bled onto the hardwood floor. 
The wound started to coagulate, and it itched something awful. Then Gus tried to stand back up. Don't you dare, the kid said, holding him down. Gus lay back, and he was now in a bed, looking up at the ceiling in his room at the Palmer. He tried to move his toes, then his fingers, but no response. He stood up, his or whoever's body did, at least. A tremendous sharp pain throbbed in his foot, and he was guided to the bathroom. His hand flicked on the light, and he looked in the mirror. Staring back was the stranger from the truck. Cold blue eyes, his brow full of nervous sweat. And now Gus noticed a fresh scratch running down the side of his face, crusting over into a scab. It looked ripe, desperate to be plucked. Gus felt his fingers run over the scab, and they made a dry, rustling sound, like flipping through an old book, like leaves raked into a pile. Then his thumb and forefinger circled into a tweezing shape, and after a few false starts, the nails got a hold. His hand pulled downward, and each new separation of scab and skin brought new pain in his face, fresh blood in the sink. He felt himself looking down and saw the entire basin stained with red and quickly filling, as if a spout had opened up. It filled and filled, then went over the sink's brim and spilled onto the floor, first following the tracks between tiles before those canals overflowed and began to run smoothly across instead. The alarm clock went off. Gus groggily sat up and cracked his head on the bottom of the bathroom sink. He pulled his hands from the cold tile and felt the first signs of a goose egg forming on his head. He stood up in a light-headed daze and staggered back toward the alarm into a waft of stagnant beer from the unwashed and half-emptied cans scattered about. Fuck this. He grabbed his overnight bag, slung it over his shoulder, and went downstairs, leaving the alarm clock buzzing behind him. The lobby was empty at this early hour. Gus passed through the revolving doors into the street and saw his breath in the cool morning air. As he walked, he heard a few huffs from the ground to his left. There were three men resting against the building's brick exterior. One held a homemade poster calling for fair wages now, tucked under his armpits and using it as a blanket. Next to them was a deflated balloon folded and dimpled. Gus pried it open with his foot and saw the beady eyes of Scabby the Rat staring back. Gus doffed an imaginary hat to the sleeping men, walked to the train station, and took the first express back home. Right this way, ma'am. Here you are. By the way, have you heard the story of the young woman who stayed in this room hoping to get a job here at the Palmer? No. Where might I have heard of it? Why, in my book. The Palmer Hotel, a collection of spooky short stories set over a century at a downtown hotel. $20. Venmo. Rick Dash Paulus. PayPal. Rick Paulus at Gmail. Cash app. Dollar sign Rick Paulus. Okay, maybe I should just tell you. sounded sharply on the door, and Sophia took a deep breath to calm herself. She stood from the desk, brushed her dress smooth, and opened the door just a tiny crack. Past the narrow slit was a man she'd never seen before. He wore dark sunglasses and took a large white envelope from his jacket and slipped it through the crack. Sophia snatched it, 
closed the door, and listened to his footsteps as they departed down the hall. She protectively cradled the envelope against her chest, set it on the desk, and just stood, looking at it, as if it would disappear if she merely blinked. Then she closed her eyes and placed a hand against the wall, her preferred coping mechanism ever since she was a young girl in Oaxaca. It was how she grounded herself. There was something about the acoustic vibrations that passed within and through walls, cryptic rhythms, secret codes from strangers. In the silence of this old building, she felt a couple having a conversation. From somewhere else, the metallic creaks of bed springs. Then in the distance, the low, droning hum of a television set. It made her feel less alone. Sophia pulled her hand from the wall, tore open the envelope, and poured out its contents. Onto the desk spilled a passport and a driver's license, both with photos and personal stats matching her own. Her new birthday was now the day of Mexican independence, easy enough to remember, and her name, as far as any authorities were concerned, was now Amber Thompson. 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 Sophia smiled through her tears of relief. Amber Thompson would have a chance. Unlike Sophia, Amber wouldn't have her life balancing on a knife's edge for killing Juan, her husband. The Mexican courts didn't believe he deserved the penalty of death for the rapes he'd committed against her, then against their daughter, so she dispensed the justice herself. Amber wouldn't have to worry about being tracked by police or hunted by Juan's violent and sprawling family, captured by either pursuer resulting in a violent revenge, be it in prison or some nondescript maquiladora. Amber would be allowed to just live. Sophia ran to the mirror to mimic the smile that appeared in the official documents. She'd taken it back in Juarez, and the harsh halogen lights they used to make her skin look lightened. It made her pimples stand out like welts. She'd heard the horror stories of mules taking advantage of their cargo during the crossing, holding them up for more money, threatening to turn them over if they didn't do what they'd ask, which could be worse than you could imagine. But Sophia had lucked out, as Waldo was an honorable man. Her only real fear came during that singular moment at the border. From her spot stuffed inside the rear seat cushions, she'd heard the custom officer ask the standard questions. Where is Waldo was coming from, where he was going. But then after a quick rifling of paperwork, the car began to roll again and didn't stop until they reached the city late last night. Another knock sounded on the hotel room door. Sophia wasn't expecting anyone, so she froze as if she was back inside those car cushions wishing whoever was on the other side would just go away. But then came a second knock, louder and stronger. The door shook on its hinges. Miss! She heard someone croak from the other side. I am with Palmer Hospitality, here to welcome you to the hotel. Sophia sat motionless and paced her breath, careful not to put any weight on the creaky floorboards. She closed her eyes and said a little prayer. Miss! Gift basket! This was followed by another set of sharp knocks, then a voice that rasped close against the door. I know you're in there, and I know who you are. Sophia turned to the window and saw the fire escape. She rushed to it, but when she pulled to open the windows, it didn't budge. It'd been painted shut. No need bothering with that. Open up and we can get this over with. Sophia opened the bedside table and stuffed her IDs into the pages of the Gideon Bible, then walked to the door and looked through the people. There was a tall man with a pockmarked face and a shiny head bracketed with hair slicked back at the sides. The side of his face had been busted long ago and held the sagging remnants of violence. 
He presented a toothy smile with no emotion behind the eyes. I have a key to your room. Don't make me use it. She swallowed and opened the door a crack, then felt the door push inward as the man walked in uninvited. He strode past Sophia and sat in the desk chair like he owned the place. You can close the door, hun. My name's Stroud. This is my joint in any of the ways that matter, so here's how it's going to work for you. He wrapped his long fingernails on the desktop, and it sounded like thick raindrops pounding against an umbrella. You need a job, we have a job. You need a place to stay, we have room. So the question is straightforward. Do you want to test your luck? Stroud took a quarter from his pocket and held it between thumb and forefinger. It caught the flickering red light coming in through the window, cast from some unknown place above. One flip. Heads, you get the job here as a maid and can stay in one of the rooms. And tails? Then you don't. We get dozens like you every year, and we don't always have jobs for them. But when we do, this is the best we can offer. Sophia felt a thick anticipation in the room, as if the walls and ceiling were closing in. He raised an eyebrow with a lingering question, and she nodded her consent. He flipped the quarter, caught it in the air, and set it against the back of his bald fist. Heads. Congratulations. Be downstairs at 7 a.m. tomorrow morning. He quickly walked out of the room and slammed the door shut behind him. Step one of Amber's American dream was realized, however odd the job interview was. She grabbed Stroud's quarter, gave it a kiss, and set it on the bedside table. She set her glasses next to them, slumped on the bed, and closed her eyes. She thought about what her mom and dad would be doing right then. He'd be riding the rickety, dust-blown bus back from work. She'd be at the stove cooking dinner. He'd greet her like always with a kiss on the cheek and a quick sample of the food before heading to bed for his 15-minute nap. Sophia's daughter, Elena, under mom and dad's care until it was the right time for mother and daughter to reunite, would already be out with her friends at the park, walking beneath the sodium streetlights, passing elotes to one another. She stretched across the bed and set her hand on the wall, trying again to find comfort in the building's vibrations. But this time, the acoustics weren't nearly as tranquil. She heard an argument, a loud thud, the shattering of broken glass, a scream. Then she heard the sound of heavy breathing, but this didn't feel like the others. This was louder, closer, in the room with her. She opened her eyes. White moonlight came through the open curtains and shone onto a woman's face. She looked somewhat like Sophia and stood silently in front of a pure blankness that seemed to stretch far beyond where the room's wall should have been. The woman's mouth was closed, her lips obscured by something. Sophia blinked to clear the fogginess in her eyes and saw that the woman's mouth had been stitched shut. Thick yarn had been woven through her dry, swollen lips. Leaning up for a closer look, Sophia saw something small and silvery on the woman's forehead, but too far away to make out. In the room came a resonant hum, then all at once a loud shifting sound, like an army marching. The woman advanced one step closer to the bed, and the moonlight directly hit her forehead. The shiny object was a quarter, showing tails. Another seismic sound, and the woman took another step forward. Sophia now saw movement behind her. A row of four figures, two men, two women, appeared from the chasmic darkness. 
They look similar, mouths also sewn shut, and all wearing the same quarters on their foreheads, each showing tails. Another shuffle, and they all advanced in a synchronized motion. Behind them was another row of silhouettes, eight bodies in all. Sophia sat higher and looked beyond, and saw these forms continuing off in the distance, their numbers multiplying with each new row, like a pyramid set on its side. The eyes of the lead woman shifted from a vacant stare to an awareness of her condition, as if suddenly she saw Sophia lying there. The woman mumbled through her stitched lips before seeming to recall that it would do no good. So instead, she made a swift motion with her forearms, crossing them into an X in front of her. Her eyes pled to Sophia. They wept. The many hundreds behind her mimicked the gesture, ejecting a funnel of air toward Sophia with an eruptive sound, forcing her eyes shut. She frantically twisted to the bedside table and turned on the lamp. The orange light sprayed through the room. The bodies dissipated, then disappeared, like the vision of a nightmare in the moments after you wake. Sophia lay there silently with a lamp on all night, watching Stroud's quarter on the nightstand, still showing heads, until it was time for her first shift at the Palmer to begin. Mr. Gitlitz, room 708. Ever hear of the famous composer Leo Zahn? He reminds me a lot of yourself. Oh, must be a cool guy. Hmm, let me tell you about him. Leo Zahn was a grotesque little man with a scowl permanently etched into his face and thinning black hair that hung like a horse's mane down his hunched shoulders. He plucked a cube from the metal ice bucket that was emblazoned with a pea and plunked it into his glass of scotch. He retrieved a second, then a third, and dropped them in as well, and they settled with the satisfying sounds of fresh clinks. He hummed to himself and dipped his raw, sinewy pinky into the scotch and swirled the cubes for a moment before he retrieved and licked it, tasting the faint traces of alcohol as it stung the micro-cuts on the side of his tongue. He winced with delight. Soft violin music floated into his room, and he stood from the desk and walked to the open window. He peered out to examine the courtyard, and while he couldn't locate the musician, he picked out the direction where it was coming, northwest, into the setting sun. He inhaled in preparation, then spoke his mind. Shut up! Shut the fuck up, you fucking loser, you piece of shit! The violin screeched to a halt. After a moment, it began again with a hesitant strum. Yes, I mean you! What gives you the right to subject us to your bullshit, you louse, you incompetent boar? The strings scratched again and never came back. Leo toasted to his own reflection in the window then down the rest of his scotch. It was time for him to get back to work. Leo had checked into the Palmer three weeks previous because he needed to make a hit, and he didn't have much time to lose. He was on the tail end of his contract with Victory Records, the label that signed him after the success of Foggy Forest, his debut. Before the major label took an interest, he'd been tinkering on the album in fits and starts for a full decade. He'd jot down an idea here, 
befriend an underpaid talent who'd play for their dinner there, all the while putting away a few dimes at a time into his production fund. When all of those pieces were finally in place, he recorded it in all about a week. It became an unlikely hit, and soon all the record labels were ringing him up. Most wanted a deal to re-release Foggy and then produce his next couple albums, but Victory wanted Foggy and upped their offer to his next five, so that was the end of negotiations. The first two records post-Foggy sold fine, but failed to live up to the breakout buzz that had preceded them. The two after that were met with accusations that Leo had phoned them in, and they weren't necessarily wrong. But the more pressing issue was that sales numbers had reflected a lack of enthusiasm by the listening public as well. This fifth album, then, was Leo's last guaranteed paycheck before he became a free agent again, and who knew if anyone would take the risk. Over the weeks at the Palmer, Leo's routine had cohered into a regular schedule. He'd wake up with a nasty hangover, down a pint of orange juice, and then, barring regular pauses for thrice daily room service, he'd work. Unfortunately, work for Leo had come to mean staring at the wall, or writing random notes and then spending the night burning them up in his trash can, or yelling out the window at annoying strangers. Leo sipped from his glass in the quiet simmer of the city twilight, and after the sun fell completely into moonlight evening, he finally walked over to the piano that he'd convinced Victory to cover the cost of installation. He hadn't played it once yet. He rested his fingers on the keys, but didn't dare press them. No, not yet. He closed his eyes and a strange calm washed over him, as if a condensation was dissipating from his clouded view, as if now he could see the rows of pines in the forest behind the house where he grew up, swaying in a gentle breeze, making that rustling dulcet. A baby began to cry. Leo Zahn's eyes shot open. He examined the building facade across from him and soon found the silhouette of a young woman, a scarf draped over her head. She held a baby swaddled in cloth that had frayed at the ends, and Leo heard her cooing sweet nothings as she rocked her wailing baby. Leo leaned out the window into the hotel courtyard. Shut up! Some people are trying to work! It's not my problem! You can't take care of your whining, sniveling little brats! The woman looked up, but didn't seem to see Leo in the darkened wall of windows. The baby's cry hesitated, then stopped entirely. You're welcome, Leo screamed, slamming the window shut. He went back to the piano and rested his fingers on the keys for another hour, then another, then one more. He thought about his father, an organ grinder who would spend hours on the street corner, twisting the crank handle for tips as the children danced and cheered him on. The trick, his dad had told them, was watching these kids. They were the audience, his tiny bosses the ones directing how quickly or slowly he should be cranking. Leo stood from the piano bench, left his room, and took the elevator downstairs. The old grandfather clock ticked in concert with loud snores coming from behind the desk of the empty lobby. These belonged to Red, a thin man with a freckled complexion and trimmed auburn hair parted down the middle. Leo lightly coughed into his fist and Red twitched and nearly fell off his chair before writing himself. Oh. <laughs> Do you have a large room or something here? 
Something that holds a lot of people. We have the Tabor Hall, sir. Best ballroom in the city. At least that's what management told me to say. Splendid. Red yawned and led him from the lobby into the hallway. They turned left and passed the bank of elevators leading up to the hotel's south tower before coming upon a set of double doors. Red pulled one open to reveal the cavernous room with a ceiling that rose two stories high. It was completely dark, lit only by a single bulb off in the distance toward the bottom of what looked like a stage. This work? Leo's brightening face told him that it would. Red flipped down a light switch and the new brightness revealed the entire room. A second floor balcony with rows of velvet lion theater seats wrapped around and loomed over the dance floor. In the room's center hung a massive sparkling chandelier. Leo was overjoyed. But then, in this new harsh light, he also saw the faded colors of the walls, the dust and grime that had accumulated over the years. There were even specks of confetti still littering the floor's corners from some previous celebration. He shut his eyes and grimaced. Off! Turn them off! Red flipped the lights off pitching the room into darkness except for the single bulb at the bottom of the stage. You can now leave. Red went back to doze in the lobby. Leo placed one hand to his chest and curved the other out in front of him as if cradling a dance partner, then began to sway awkwardly and his footsteps rapped on the slatted hardwood and echoed through the spacious room. His knees didn't work like they used to, his muscles growing more constricted with every passing year. He began to hum, out of tune. He nearly retched at the atrocious sounds he was making. You piece of shit! Get it together, you talentless hack! He took a breath, shut his eyes, and began to sway again. Smoother now, finding some sort of vague rhythm. Leo Zahn imagined that he was moving through a crowd of people, spinning around in a loose sequence. These would be the dancers, the ones he was really writing the music for. His audience his bosses. Leo's knees loosened and his heels tapped out a staccato rhythm. And we danced, and we danced, and we danced, and we danced. He pictured the dancers again, and he swore he could actually feel their body heat as they surrounded him. He imagined the women in their long dresses with pearl strands clasped around their necks, and the men in suits and slick back hair who held their partners close. He thought about those populating the ballroom's upper balcony, the darkened spaces where secrets were told, where gossip was spread, where couples were made and rivalries born. This, Leo thought, is what the job was. Not making money for victory records, but creating the right atmosphere for where these moments could take place. His eyes still shut, Leo picked up his pace and suddenly felt a new presence nearby. She was a few inches shorter than him, with long brown hair, and she wore a red dress in a style he couldn't quite place. She danced alone, her steps in perfect rhythm, her arms swaying around her body. As she moved, the crowd parted to give her more space, almost as if she was in command of their movements as well. Somehow, Leo Zahn knew that if he opened his eyes, this woman would disappear from him forever. Now, as he moved, he was certain that the crowd around him was real, that they were all really there. Not just fictions he'd conjured up, but presences with flesh and bones and sweat. They encircled him, swaying to the music he hummed. Their conversations sounded near and far all at once, like his ears were popping, 
One fretted about a conflict with a neighbor, another was happy about a raise at work. And there in the crowd was the woman in the red dress again. She turned to Leo and he saw her eyes, an alluring aqua blue. She took his hands in hers and he felt their warmth. The two began to dance and sink, but she was decidedly in control. Any discomfort he'd had in his joints was now gone. His hunched shoulders had straightened up, even his scowl had smoothed. She leaned forward to whisper in his ear, but he couldn't hear. The music was too loud. What? She spoke again, but her voice was again drowned out by the music. It was a four-on-the-floor beat with a crescendo that peaked around the third note. I can't hear you because of the damn music. The music. His eyes shot open. The woman in red stood there with a faint smile, but only for a moment before she faded away. Leo was left all alone in the ballroom, darkened save the lone light near the stage. He searched his pockets for paper and a pen to capture what he'd heard in his head, the tune that he'd been humming. But when he came up empty, he sprinted through the double doors and took the elevator back into his room, where he ran to the piano and began to play. Meanwhile, back downstairs in the hotel ballroom, the souls continued their anticipatory linger, waiting for Leo's music to return. Ah, Antifada hosts. Good morning. How pleasant to see that you've survived the night. How are you enjoying your continental heckfest? Oh, it's good. Mm. Oh, not bad, yeah. It's mm. quite tasty. Flavor and sweet. Yeah. Good heckfest. Mm, good heckfest, yeah. So, nothing spooky happened to you in the night? Hmm. Yeah, now that you mention it, I kept getting woken up by this shrill, wheezing voice. I'd go back to sleep and start having a nice dream where I was doing political education for all the masses, and then all of a sudden, that voice would yell something like, Pause it! Interrupting me again and again and again. Yeah, you know, something weird happened to me too. I woke up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat. I went to wash my face and I looked in the mirror and saw a ghastly skeletal creature with hair full of leaves and branches sucking on a Red Bull from a straw and whining at me in an Australian accent. Reply to me! Reply to me! Reply! Spooky. Ah, it's fine. You just have to say touch grass, touch grass, touch grass three times and they disappear. Oh... Damn, I I remember now something weird happened to me, too. Around 2 a.m., a badly disfigured corpse of a Russian revolutionary with a gaping head wound knocked at my door. He said he was haunting me for ruining his name with my book, I Want to Believe, Pesazim, UFOs, and Apocalypse Communism, now on sale for 40% off at PlutoBooks.com. Please, no promotion. That shit is hacky. Anyway, I said, wow, you must be Trotsky. I invited him in and told him about what had happened to his movement since his death. And after about an hour of talking, he stopped me and said, Buddy, never mind. You're scaring me. And he vanished. Ooh, now that is a spooky ghoul. I suppose you're all put off from staying at the Palmer Hotel anytime soon. Oh, not at all, Rick. 
From a Marxist perspective, all hotels are dead capital, haunted by the living labor it sucked from the workers that built and maintained it. Yeah, actually, this was perfect. My friends and I were looking for haunted hotels to stay in this spooky season, and this wasn't even on Atlas Obscura. We'll definitely be back next year. Oh, good grief. I guess I need to scare it the fuck up for the second edition. Hey guys, it's me, the taxi driver. I hope you've enjoyed this special Palmer Hotel Halloween episode of the Antifana. But I want to talk to you about something really serious. All around the country, every October, ghosts are being trafficked from hotel to hotel to increase business from Brooklyn hipsters in search of an authentic spooky season. Obviously, scare work is scare work. But if you see a listicle of haunted Airbnbs or scary old hotels, remember... These ghosts have real afterlives, and when you go home in November, they're still here. So do your homework. Make sure it's ghosts that you're supporting. Don't be part of the problem. And have a happy I didn't get that at all. I thought that was the party for socialism and liberation. Well, that's the joke, Sean. No, I get it now. I just, yeah. <laughs> People call it pumpkin spice latte also. That's like a pre-existing joke. Oh, I see. I didn't even know that. <laughs>